0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine,
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: On this week's program, Sexual Health and Improving Intimacy, how intimacy exercises can enhance a relationship.
2: So There are some really
3: great exercises called Sensate Focus Exercises. They're gradual exercises that are all about focusing on the sensation so that's why they're called sensate focus
2: you're focusing on sensations we'll talk with mayo clinic psychologist and sex therapist dr jordan Rullo about steps you can take to improve intimacy with your partner
1: also on this program january is glaucoma awareness month and mayo clinic ophthalmologist dr sophie bakri joins us to talk about detection and treatment of glaucoma and macular degeneration
2: all that along with this week's health and medical news right after this
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And
2: I'm Tracy McRae.
1: You know, studies have shown that sexual health is an important part of overall well-being. And yet, for a lot of us, intimacy often gets sidelined at the expense of our des- busy lives. In mm. fact, I just saw an article about the Japanese, and that's particularly true in their country. Is that they right? They've sort of lost interest oh, in sex, goodness. despite the fact they're trying to increase their population. <laughs> what can be done?
2: Here to talk about some strategies for enhancing intimacy in your life is Dr. Jordan Rulo. Dr. Rulo has her doctorate in clinical psychology and is a certified sex therapist at the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rulo. Well, thank you for having me.
1: Good to have you here. And I, The first question I want to ask is you obviously see people who for sex therapy every day. What's the most common complaint of, of patients and, and couples that you see?
3: Most common complaint, hands down, is low sexual desire. Hmm.
1: Um,
3: so the the quote I'll often hear is, um, so I'm talking about heterosexual couples. It's mm-hmm. the um, most of the patients I see heterosexual. Uh, so, so I'll hear a woman say, you know, I just... If I never had to have sex again in the rest of my life, I'd be fine with that. I'm here because he's making me come here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And if he's okay with that, then it's just fine. But if he's not, then you've got a problem. Yes.
3: Is it
1: always the woman? Who has lost sexual desire? No,
2: it is
3: not always the woman. Well, I is... wanted
1: to make that clear. Okay, very good. I that's don't want to blame everything question. on a, yeah. a spouse.
3: Um, more often than not, at least in my practice, and we know this from the research as well, sure. it is the woman, if we're talking about a male-female partnership, uh, but I will see men as well with low sexual desire.
2: So the reason that we came together is because there was a piece that was on the Huffington Post entitled New Year, New Intimacy. Mm-hmm. So as we start off 2015, that that's what we want to start thinking about, is maybe finally we start addressing this low, I don't know, low libido issue in couples.
3: And it might be low libido, it might be low sexual desire, or it may just be kind of the the sexual relationship has become stale.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
3: Couples will often get their script. We do this, we do this, this is how I initiate. Okay, this is the day that we do it. Okay, it's the time, (laughs) this is nighttime.
2: So what do you do when you do feel like it's scripted, that you do feel like there's no spark anymore?
3: You gotta shake it up. You gotta shake it up.
2: <laughs> That's what you do in 2015. Shake yeah, it up.
3: Shake it up. Well, That's said like the Taylor Swift song. That's right. right I think. Uh, so uh, I mean, so one piece is that it might be a script. You've kind of fallen into this rut, and that just might be one small piece of it. So when you think about sexual health problems, they can be caused by a variety of different issues, and you've got to look at all the different factors. So sometimes it is a script issue. The relationship dynamic has gotten kind of stale sometimes it's a biological issue. Perhaps it's a result of menopause or aging. Uh, maybe it's a sociocultural factor. Maybe there are some repressive messages. Um, let's say you've never really felt comfortable being sexual. Maybe it's privacy piece. You've got three kids in the house <laughs> and you want to be sexual, but you can hear them running around in the hallways. Mm-hmm. And so your mind's getting distracted. There could be a ton of different factors. Uh, so, the important piece is identifying what are those main factors that are really inhibiting the sexual relationship and then trying to tackle as many of those as possible. The more of those you can tackle, the better opportunity you have to enhance the sexual relationship or enhance your desire.
2: Some of them are easy then. Uh, for the list you just said, you find a babysitter. Mm-hmm. But um, some of them, not so much. Yes. I, if I could figure out a way not to go into menopause, I'll look forward to that. So what and, do you do with that?
3: So That's a great point. Um, some of the factors you cannot change, like... Aging, so part of aging is going to be menopause. Um, You can't change that. We're all going to go, all women are going to go through menopause at some point. So then the question becomes are you willing to accept that that has changed your sexual function? And if you're willing to accept it, will you adapt to it? It's the couples I see where they're not willing to accept how their sexual function has changed as a result of aging. And they come in my office and they say, we want it to be like it was when we were in our 20s. And if it's not like we're in our 20s, we don't want it. Well, guess what? You're never going to be happy again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So having realistic expectations and being able to adapt to the fact that, yes, your sexual function has changed as a result of aging. And it's going to look different probably in every decade of your life.
1: Is sexual a sexual relationship uh, really that important to a marriage? I mean, are there some couples who just both agree that it, it doesn't matter?
3: Uh, another great question. Yes, there are many couples. Uh, who say that a sexual relationship is not important in their relationship. For them, it's more the companionate or the the friendship piece of their relationship that drives it. Um, And those are the couples that I do not see. They're both happy with the level of desire they have, which may be a very low level of desire. Uh, Often I'll see the couples where there's a discrepancy in the level of desire. um, Or their sexual relationship is really important. They both have high desire, but they are just way too busy and they can't figure out how to prioritize it.
2: One of the things we talked about uh, getting started and back and forth when you and I were setting this up was planning intimacy, which I think Mm. is funny because that sounds like an oxymoron, absolutely, which it seems like that should be spontaneous. And I would imagine that's one of the big problems that people have with coming to you for help.
3: Yes, I often have couples tell me that their expectations for their sexual health is that good sex has to be spontaneous sex. That's so not true. That's such a myth. And if you expect that good sex has to be spontaneous sex and you are, you and your partner both work full time and you have several children, then sex is not gonna happen if you're waiting for it to be spontaneous. For many dual earning couples with kids, you have got to be planful when it comes to your sexual relationship. You gotta plan it. You gotta put it in the schedule or it's not gonna happen. And that's okay. Planful sex can be great sex, but that's only one piece of it. Another piece is to redefine intimacy. So what is intimacy in your relationship? And even if we go beyond the sexual health realm, there's emotional intimacy, there's recreational intimacy, there's spiritual intimacy, there's tons of different types of intimacy. But then let's go specifically in sexual health. So sexual intimacy, lots of couples that I see will say, well, um, sexual intimacy is just sex, right? It's just pedial vaginal penetration. Ah, but that is only one type Mm -hmm. of sexual intimacy. Perhaps sexual intimacy is just holding hands, cuddling, uh, kissing, all the other different types of non-penetrative sexual activities. So having a a broader menu of what sexual intimacy and intimacy is will help when your life is busy.
1: When you are talking with a uh, couple, do you find that the woman is much more willing to talk than the man in most instances? And how do you get the man to talk?
3: Um, no, I actually don't find that. It really depends on the um, kind of the family of origin of the patient. So what did they learn growing up? Did their family growing up talk about sexual health? Did they they grow up in a sex-positive family? I believe that talking about health really is a skill. And so if an individual has learned that skill growing up or their family's been open about it or maybe they had good sex education in school, then that whoever that person is in the couple is more willing to talk about sexual
2: health. And yeah, that- the person that is the mouthpiece for the couple. Yes, often there it. is one of those, yeah. We're talking with Mayo Clinic psychologist and sex therapist Dr. Jordan Rullo about steps you can take to enhance intimacy in your life. When we come back, exercises for a better intimate relationship. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. We're
1: here with Mayo Clinic psychologist and sex therapist, Dr. Jordan Rullo talking about ways to enhance intimacy in our lives. One of the things that we promised our audience that we would talk about were intimacy exercises. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that?
3: Yes, yeah, so there are some really great exercises called sensate focus exercises. And these were actually developed by Masters and Johnson in the 1960s, 70s. Um, so for those of you who watch Showtime, that's the new <laughs> Masters of Sex show. That's an actual couple, both researchers, who developed these exercises decades ago. And what these exercises are is they're, they're gradual exercises that are all about focusing on the sensation. So that's why they're called sensate focus. You're focusing on sensations. And there are a number of different phases, but typically there are about four phases. And in phase one and phase two, you and your partner agree to have what I call a sex embargo. So no sexual activity. And oftentimes when I start to describe this to couples, they say, I'm sorry, wait, what? <laughs> You're telling me that the way we're going to enhance our sexual relationship is to have a sex embargo? This does not make any sense.
1: Now, how long does this last normally?
3: <laughs> and funny, because that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> well, how long do we have to do this for? Let me, let me get to the more of the details, and then we can get to how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first couple phase... Is when you have this sex embargo phase one and phase two is just sensual touching with a focus on being really present, being really mindful, and focusing on the sensations. Turn off your cell phone, Um, kids have a babysitter, or kids are uh, asleep already. Uh, Make sure there's privacy, it's just you and your partner, and you two are being really present with each other, which often is priceless. I mean, you think about really busy Mm -hmm. couples, they don't have time to just be with each other. So that in itself, prioritizing just time to be together with no pressure is huge for couples. So first couple phases, full body, sensual touching all over. In phase one, you avoid those typically erogenous zones, so the breasts and the genitals. Mm -hmm. So no touching of breasts and genitals in phase one. And then in phase two, you add breasts and genitals. And you're just touching all over with no pressure. These are non-pressured sensual exercises. There's no expectation and there's no goal either. Uh, The whole, uh, the important piece of this is that you and your partner are present. And if you find your mind wandering, I mean, maybe you do hear the kids in the hallway or you're thinking about this big deadline at work. Okay. Recognize that your mind's going elsewhere. You can say, hi, I I see you big deadline (laughs) at work and let it go by and then go back to the sensations. Sexual
2: mindfulness? Sexual
3: mindfulness, yes. And the third phase is when you would start to bring in more sexual activities. So this would be the non-penetrative sexual activities. Uh, And in fact, in our clinic here, in the Women's Health Clinic, we'll give couples an entire two-sided list of all different non-penetrative sexual activities. Uh, And on that list, there's a rating scale of five, I would love to do this, and one, I don't want to do this. And the list gradually gets a bit more adventurous, and so I'll tell couples, take this list, each of you get a list, and rate how willing you are to do all these different activities, then compare your ratings and everything you two rate really highly, that becomes your new sexual menu. And then the final phase is to reintroduce penetrative sexual activity, um, which is presumably what the couple had already been doing. But by the time they get to that final phase, they've learned so much. They've added a lot to their sexual menu that adding that fourth phase, adding penetration is like, eh, been there, done that. We've got a lot of other fun stuff to do.
2: <laughs> what are these these four steps? What is the normal time span that they usually take? Okay,
3: so the time. It is as long as you want it to be. A Really important piece of Sensate Focus is that there is no pressure. Because if you think about uh, couples getting into this stale relationship, often part of the staleness is that there is pressure. Well, we know that Friday night's the night as soon as the kids go to bed, and whether I want to do it or not, it has to happen because it didn't happen for a week. Um, So there's a lot of pressure on couples. What's neat about this is it takes away that pressure. So there's no time pressure. You can stay in Phase 1 for months if you want. What I will tell couples is to do at least three of each phase, and that is the absolute bare minimum, at least three of each phase before they go on to the next phase. And the reason is the first time you do this, it's it's about 30 minutes long, 30 minutes of full body touching. The first time you do it, it can be kind of awkward never done it before. Well, I'm looking at the clock. How long is this going to take? I can only touch you so many ways. Um, So you've got to do it a few times to kind of get more into the flow of it.
1: So five things on the menu. Give us a couple of examples.
3: Oh, I've got to censor myself a little bit. So it starts starts very simple. Hand-holding, uh, kissing, and then moves farther up into the more typical sexual activities, manual stimulation, oral sex, um, and then it gets a little more adventurous. Maybe bringing in some some clamps or some um, feathers. I'll let you. I'll leave that to your imagination. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's all that we need. Thank yeah, you very per, much. That's pretty close to five,
1: isn't it? So you mentioned at the beginning of the program that, that the most common problem you see is a discrepancy in libido between the man and, and, and the woman, or mm-hmm. Uh, loss of libido from the man or the woman. And how do you help them solve that problem?
3: So it really depends on what the causes are. And again, I go back to the fact that there could be tons of different factors, biological, psychological, relationship, other life factors. So what I'll do with a patient is dive into what are all the factors that are getting in the way, a lot of my practice is women who are postmenopausal, whether that's from surgery or whether that's natural menopause. So here's what happens in menopause when those um, ovaries aren't working anymore or have been removed. You're not getting that same hormone surge. Mm-hmm. So there, there, are, there are two types of sexual desire. So one type of sexual desire is called spontaneous desire, and this is the desire that we most often think of. And then second type of desire is what's called receptive or willing desire. So with this one, you don't have that internal drive or that internal craving. Pretty sexually neutral. Sex really isn't even on your mind, but the ingredients are in place that allow you to be willing to be sexual, say if your partner initiated. So in this circumstance, partner initiates, and then you think, huh, well kids are in bed, I'm not feeling very stressed out, I have some energy, I'm not too tired. Uh, you know, it wasn't on my mind, but sure, Even sure. Even though I'm it's willing. not Friday
2: night, okay.
3: Exactly. So you've got spontaneous desire and you've got willingness a receptive desire. So when women go through menopause... Many women report that that spontaneous desire takes a huge hit. Um, it either goes away or it significantly decreases. And the reason is, if you think about the spontaneous desire having a having a gas tank, and you think about the gas that's in this gas tank, most of the gas in the gas tank for spontaneous desire is hormones. Mm-hmm. So you go through menopause and you're not making those hormones anymore, particularly testosterone. Uh, so as a result, spontaneous desire goes away.
1: So women do have a little testosterone?
3: Yes, women Uh, do.
1: Prior to menopause? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But very little afterwards?
3: Uh, Actually, menopause doesn't impact your uh, testosterone. By about age 40, women are producing about half of the amount of testosterone that they previously had. But regardless, women have about one-tenth of the amount of testosterone that men have. And if testosterone is the the big hormone driver for um, sexual desire, and you think about women have one-tenth of it as men, there's a lot of people reporting a
2: desire discrepancy as a result of that.
1: Yeah, see, men can't help it. It's the (laughs) testosterone.
2: Well, and just maybe when the woman gets all the way through menopause, and figures out, all right, now here's my new deal, then the men start having issues with their hormones, correct?
3: Uh, Yes, men gradually decline in their uh, testosterone, and so will report as they get older. Not all men, but can report a Mm -hmm. decrease in desire. And if you're thinking about aging, there's also a decrease in erectile functioning as well, which can impact a man's desire. So sometimes couples will kind of meet in the middle as they get older, but that's not always the case.
1: Uh, Do most health insurance plans cover sex therapy? What do you do?
3: Sadly, they do not, which has been my experience uh, here at Mayo and other places that I've worked. Um, for whatever reason, lots of health insurance companies have an exclusion for sex therapy, or if the primary diagnosis is a sexual health diagnosis, they've just arbitrarily decided,
1: hmm.
3: ah, sexual health now—that's actually not that important. We're not going to pay for that, which is a is a is a bummer. Yeah, um, it's quality
2: of life, that's for sure. It's
3: quality of life. Uh, A lot of what I do here at May is consultations, so 90 minutes just trying to figure out what are the main issues and what are some brief interventions. Typically, insurance companies will pay for those consultations or a diagnostic session because at least they'll say, okay, we'll pay for you to kind of figure out what's going on, and then once the determination is this is a sexual health issue, that's when insurance companies say, no, we're not going to pay for you to treat it.
1: Just take the menu and you're on your own.
3: Yes. yes. By
1: the way, you are obviously qualified uh, with regard to what you do, but how do you become a sex therapist?
3: Ooh, many, many years and many hours of doing individual therapy for sexual health concerns, uh, being supervised for many hours for sexual health concerns and many, many, many hours of sexual health education. There's a whole several year certification process that has to happen.
1: Well, it sounds like you uh, did it all very well and are very knowledgeable on the topic. Thanks so much for being with us Dr. Rulo.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, glaucoma and macular degeneration are eye conditions that untreated can lead to serious loss of vision. We'll talk to a Mayo clinic eye expert about the latest in detection and treatment of glaucoma and macular degeneration
1: and a reminder february is american heart month and if you have a heart related question you'd like us to answer in an upcoming program you can tweet us anytime at hashtag mayo clinic radio
2: coming up the latest health and medical news with vivian williams you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, is a group of lung diseases that block airflow and make it hard to breathe. Now, people who have it may struggle with exercise because the COPD gets worse when they exert themselves. This leads to people being sedentary, which we all know is not good. Well, researchers from Wake Forest University looked at how drinking beet juice affects exercise capacity. Beet juice, it turns out, is rich with nitrates, and they wanted to see if drinking it before exercise helped, especially because in earlier studies, they found a link between drinking beet juice and increased blood flow to the brain. They found people with COPD who drank beet juice were able to extend their exercise time. They say this was a small study and more research is needed, and it was published in the journal Nitric Oxide Biology and Chemistry. And in other news, take this with a full glass of water and don't lie down for an hour. Doctors at Mayo Clinic say those instructions are important because if you don't follow them, you're at risk of what's called pill-induced esophagitis. It happens when medication gets stuck in your esophagus. The contents leak out and cause major chest pain. Here's Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Karthik Ravi.
1: So typically, patients are going to complain of chest pain. The chest pain is going to be pretty quick in onset. It's going to happen within a couple of hours to days of taking the tablet. It's going to be pretty severe. It can radiate to the back. It's typically worse when they swallow, and they sometimes will even notice that it may be more difficult to swallow.
0: Dr. Ravi says these medications are the worst culprits. Some antibiotics such as doxycycline, biphosphonates used for osteoporosis, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and supplements such as potassium and iron. Damage is rarely permanent, but to avoid it, follow directions on the label. And now here's some news you might want to tell students you know who want to pound caffeine and pull all-nighters to cram for a test. A paper in the journal eLife says that may not be the best strategy. Now, those researchers say the best thing to do is put down the coffee and get some sleep. They say sleep and memory are connected. And if you're sleep-deprived, you may have a hard time remembering things. Sleep is critical to short- and long-term memory. But how all that works has been a mystery. These scientists figured out how memory and And sleep work in the brain of a fly, which they say could help them unravel secrets of the human brain. They say it could help us figure out how sleep or memory is affected when things go wrong, such as in insomnia. In the meantime, they know that getting enough sleep is key to being able to remember things, so all-nighters may not be the best way to ace that test. And that's a look at headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. And we are with ophthalmologist, eye specialist, Dr. Sophie Bakri of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Bakri, welcome back to the program and congratulations on two new babies since <laughs> you, you were last year.
4: Thank you,
1: Tom. How are the twins doing?
4: They're doing wonderfully. Thank you.
1: So January is Glaucoma Awareness Month. February, uh, Macular Degeneration Awareness Month. Uh, both, I suspect, sponsored by organizations that you belong to, to try and increase awareness of both of these conditions. Let's talk about glaucoma first, uh, because it affects so many uh, people. What what is glaucoma?
4: So glaucoma is a disease that um, damages the optic nerve at the back of the eye. And as a result of that damage, um, uh, visual acuity, especially
1: the visual field,
4: uh, can be damaged.
1: And it's increased pressure inside the eye? Is Is that what causes the damage to the optic nerve?
4: So there are several types of glaucoma. Um, One of the types is uh, primary open-angle glaucoma, and patients have increased eye pressure during uh, that type. Uh, There's another kind that's actually called normal tension glaucoma, where they get optic nerve damage, but the uh, intraocular pressure in the eye could be normal.
1: And how does that happen?
4: Nobody quite knows, but we think that the optic nerve is more uh, sensitive to even the normal pressure uh, inside the eye. And there are certain other systemic risk factors that uh, put people at risk as well.
1: So you could have damage to the optic nerve without increased pressure in the eye, but by far and away the most common type is the the increased pressure, is it not? The most common type is
4: primary open-angle glaucoma, yes, which has increased pressure. There's also another kind that has uh, uh, very, very high pressures, And that's when you have um, an attack of angle closure, glaucoma, or even a more slow form of chronic angle closure.
1: This is an asymptomatic condition, correct? I mean, people don't necessarily know they have it unless they detect some loss of vision. The only way you can detect glaucoma is to come to someone who can actually measure the pressure in your eye or look inside your eye?
4: Absolutely. Glaucoma is one of those diseases that could be really devastating if undiagnosed because it creeps up on you very slowly. And um, there are several ways to uh, diagnose glaucoma. Uh, One of them is checking the pressure, but also the other is to check the peripheral vision as well. And we have very sensitive equipment to do that in the eye clinics.
1: And who should come in and get checked and when?
4: So it it is actually race dependent. Um, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans are more likely to get glaucoma. Um, So they should come in earlier to be checked, perhaps around the age of 40. Um, White uh, patients are more likely to get it when they're over the age of 60. So screening potentially could start then. But uh, the main way that I know of a glaucoma test is just
2: that puff of air into the eye, which they started doing that to me when I was in my 20s. Why do you start checking so soon if for a Caucasian, you don't start having symptoms
4: until maybe you're 60? So, uh, we check it as, a, as part of a routine okay. eye exam. So, if you went for eyeglasses or something, you would have had it checked there.
1: Gotcha. You mentioned that race uh, is a risk factor. Are there others? Uh,
4: there are other risk factors. So, if your eye is um, short sighted or long sighted, that's a risk. Um, sometimes uh, patients with normal tension glaucoma. Um, can have cold hands and cold feet, similar to Raynaud's disease, Hmm. and uh, that uh, may indicate that the blood flow could be a little bit uh, lower to the optic nerve. So that's also a risk factor in those types of um, patients.
1: So you said nearsighted or farsighted? You use different terminology for that, Uh, short and long-sighted. Well, I hadn't heard that uh-huh. before.
4: Well, it's it's one of several ways of describing myopia and hyperopia.
1: You talked about the importance of detecting this early, which obviously means that there is some, some treatment for this condition and you can prevent loss of vision if you do treat it. How do you treat it?
4: So the first way of treating it is with eye drops to lower the pressure. So even patients who have the normal tension glaucoma need the pressure lowered as well. Um, and there are several different kinds of eye drops. Um, They can be placed as little as once a day or several times a day. And sometimes it's necessary to use several different eye drops um, uh, together when people have really high pressures. It sounds like this is
2: something that somebody would be able to recognize. It sounds like it would be painful if you have too much pressure in your eyeball. It seems like that would give you a headache or you'd at least have some sort of sensation
4: regarding that. But it's completely asymptomatic? A normal um, maximum pressure is about 22 millimeters of mercury. Um, In primary open angle glaucoma, it can go up to, say, 28, 30, rarely higher than that. Hmm. But at at that level, you wouldn't have any pain. Now, if you had an acute attack of angle closure and the pressure was 60, then you would feel not only eye pain but nausea and vomiting and headaches.
2: And I suppose that it happens so gradually that you just kind of become accustomed to it even if it is a great pressure?
4: So um, with the, with the uh, gradual increase in the pressure, it tends not to go above, um, say, about 30. Uh, so you wouldn't necessarily notice anything. Um, and An acute attack, you would notice it right away. But again, that's a different form of glaucoma, and it is much rarer.
1: Do the eye drops always work? Or what if you fail eye drops? Then are there other uh, modalities you have available to treat these people?
4: So, uh, there's a stepwise approach to treatment. Um, typically, you start with one eye drop, then two, then three, mm. and um, then um, that's what we call maximally tolerated medical therapy. Sometimes you can add a pill in, like a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, um, but we rarely do that uh, because of long term effects. Um, the next side effects
1: of this medication that may not be good.
4: Uh, cor- correct. The carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, we would just use that uh, for the short term. Uh, next then comes laser treatment, and there are many different kinds of uh, laser treatment um, to cause changes in the drainage channels um, of the eye.
1: So the try to pressure. get that fluid out of there to decrease the pressure.
2: Yes. Is there anything that people can do to prevent glaucoma, or is it you just get it, you do the drops, and that's it? I mean, is there anything else that you, a, per, a patient could do? There really
4: is nothing to prevent the uh, primary open angle glaucoma type because much of it could be genetic.
3: Oh. Um,
4: there's a lot of work going on in that uh, in that area. So I think that uh, early detection and early treatment, and by the way, Tom, you had asked about uh, treatment. We've got to lasers, but then there's another step as well oh. that could be surgical incisional treatment. And um, that's, for, uh, that's for patients who've Failed, generally drops, and laser treatment.
1: And, and what do you do there?
4: So um, we surgically create a drainage channel um, to increase the outflow of fluid through the eye.
1: Put for a drain pressure. in?
4: Um, sometimes a, what we call a tube shunt. Um, other times uh, we create a drainage channel in a procedure called a trabeculectomy.
1: And where do you uh, want that fluid to d- drain? I mean, so does it drain out or in or where? The clear?
4: fluid usually drains um, outside of the eye uh, in, um, in a bleb.
1: A, a bleb? What is
2: that? It's like a little blister okay. that we create. It sounds like it would be something, though, that, what do I know? But it just sounds like if you would cut the eye ball, <laughs> if there's pressure in there, that that would relieve pressure. Why is that not one of the options that you have? Is that what you're doing?
4: During a trabeculectomy, there's a very tiny hole punched in the sclera. And we're talking millimeters here. And a very tiny part of the trabecular meshwork um, removed. And now if you were to punch a hole in the eye, the fluid would gush out. Mm. And that would be not a good outcome. This is why you don't
1: want me in charge of your trabeculectomy. That's exactly right, and we don't even (laughs) want to ask what that part of the eye is. We're talking with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. We'll take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, women are more likely than men to get glaucoma.
2: We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheid. And
2: I'm Tracy McRae.
1: We're here with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri talking about glaucoma and macular degeneration. One myth or matter of fact before we go to macular degeneration, and that is...
2: Women are more likely than men to get glaucoma. Is
4: that a myth or a matter of fact? Uh, Tracy, I think that's a matter of fact. Women uh, live longer than men these days, and glaucoma is an age-related uh, condition.
1: February is... Uh, Macular Degeneration Awareness Month. So let's talk about that, because that is a serious problem, particularly as the population ages. It's one of the most common causes of blindness. It's a different kind of condition than glaucoma. Tell us about macular degeneration.
4: So the macular is the uh, central part of the retina that's responsible for fine vision. And in um, sub, some patients, um, as they get older, the, um, the macular macula uh, ages to a greater extent. Um, there tend to be deposits underneath the macula in the early stages. Uh, there tends to be atrophy of the macula and sometimes a bleeding vessel under the macula.
1: So macula, but when you say atrophy, you mean basically it, it shrinks?
4: The uh, photoreceptors in uh, that area uh, die off.
1: So it's a degenerative process. I mean, there's uh, it, it goes along with aging. Absolutely there are there other causes other than aging?
4: Well, there are other causes, but age related macular degeneration tends to happen in patients over the age of uh, fifty five. Um, certainly, genetics is a huge component, and we 're learning more and more about the uh, several genes involved um, in terms of other causes. Well, you know patients who have um, hypertension, for example, may be more. Uh, predisposed to have it, patients may have, with cardiovascular risk factors may also be uh, predisposed.
2: Are there? Um, there's two different kinds of macular degeneration. I know one is worse than the other. I'm not sure which one that is. But first, explain the two different types of MD.
4: So there's the dry kind and the wet kind. And in the dry kind, uh, that starts off with deposits underneath the retina called drusen, and drusen. Mm. Um, uh, that's, I think, German for rocks. And then.
1: Rocks uh, under the red nut.
4: Yeah. Does it feel like that, um, as a side note? The, the picture looks okay. like that. Okay. Yes, it looks like a bumpy road. Okay. And then the um, light sensitive cells, called the photoreceptors, um, can start to die, and that's what we call atrophy. And when they coalesce to a big, round area, we call that geographic atrophy. So they're the two components, the drusen and the atrophy of the dry kind. And that progresses very slowly. Now, along the way, the eye can start to grow an unwanted blood vessel underneath the macula. Mm-hmm. And that's when it becomes the wet kind. And so does it, tra- it,
2: it, can it dry MD can become wet MD? Is that what you're saying?
4: Yes, Mm -hmm. and and there's actually quite a high rate of conversion.
1: What about the symptoms? What might someone notice in the early stages of macular degeneration?
4: The patients may notice uh, wavy lines centrally. They may notice blind spots, um, areas missing, um, and sometimes just it's a general blurriness.
1: And then uh, how do you make the diagnosis? Can you tell by looking in the eye what the problem is?
4: So using the slit lamp, which is a a standard piece of equipment in Mm -hmm. the um, eye clinic, uh, we can actually diagnose macular degeneration. Uh, Once the diagnosis is made and there's a question about whether it's wet or whether it's dry, then there are other tests that we do. Uh, For example, OCT, which is uh, taking a picture of the cross-section of the retina. And um, a fluorescein angiogram, where you have a dye injected into the vein, and the dye circulates um, into the retinal vessels and shows us if they're leaking. You had
2: said earlier when we were talking about glaucoma that um, race was a factor in that.
4: Um, Is race a factor for macular degeneration? Um, It is, Mm. and actually... um, White patients are more likely to get macular degeneration than African-Americans. In fact, it's very rare in African-Americans. So it's the exact opposite Hmm. is for
1: glaucoma. This is a much more difficult condition to treat than glaucoma, is it not?
4: It is very challenging. I would say that every disease has its challenges based on the severity, um, but certainly um, there are several great treatments for macular degeneration And again, it's all about early detection, so the treatments can be started right away without any loss of time or vision.
1: And the treatment for the two is different, isn't it, at least in part?
4: So there's no treatment, there's no cure for uh, dry macular degeneration. Uh, We recommend a vitamin supplement uh, based on a national study called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study, and,
1: um, Multivitamin or a special vitamin?
4: It's actually a special vitamin. And um, it consists of um, vitamin C and E, um, a little bit of zinc, um, a little bit of lutein.
1: Does it have a name, this um, vitamin?
4: So there are several different brands, but what you look for on the box is AREDS 2, which means the age related eye disease study number 2, and that um, provided the latest guidelines for the composition of these vitamins.
1: A-REDS?
4: A-R-E-D-S-2. Our
1: Ritz friends over two. at the
4: uh, Healthy Living
2: Program where we were there talking about nutrition would probably say, let's talk about some foods that you should eat that you should include. And lutein sounds like that. Is that a spinach
4: one? Is, am I remembering my health? And eggs. And eggs? Okay, great. And eggs. So um, oily fish, such as salmon and sardines, has been shown to be beneficial. Certainly the idea of fish oil pills has been explored in trials, but it's not really been found to be effective, but oily fish has been.
1: Is there any uh, reason that people with the longevity in their genes ought to be taking the vitamins that you talked about? Do it, will it do anything to help prevent macular degeneration?
4: So th- that's a great question, Tom, and certainly that was one of the uh, important questions that came out of the ARED study. And uh, what we found participating in that study is that if patients did not have macular degeneration or they had very early macular degeneration, then there was no benefit from taking the vitamins. They had to have the intermediate kind, which is diagnosed um, by the physician. And at that point, when they start taking them, the risk of progression reduces by 20 percent.
1: So. Take the AREDS, but wait until it uh, you've got the condition. It it won't prevent macular degeneration. Unfortunately not.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Bakri, for bringing us up to date on the latest in the diagnosis and treatment of glaucoma and macular degeneration. Thank you, Tracy. Thank
1: you, Tom. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic.
2: Have a question about health and
1: medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts?
2: Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: And a reminder, February is American Heart Month, and if you have a heart-related question you'd like us to answer in an upcoming program, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor, Audrey Castleton. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want, from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.